Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we ask that you would fix our souls upon Christ. Father, we know, as we saw last week, that He is the only one who satisfies the empty soul. He's the only one who restores us to what we were designed to be. And Lord, You know, and yet we continue to cry out as we groan in this world that is full, filled with pain and sorrow and difficulty. It is immense. But yet, Lord, You are greater than it all. So, Father, today as we look to Your Word for hope, may that hope be found in Your Savior, in Your Son, in our Christ, in Jesus. Take your word today, apply it to our hearts and lives. Minister to us, Father, the grace that is needed to encourage, to strengthen, and to change so that we may leave this place different than when we first came in. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. We're going to try something today. I'm going to try to do the whole book in one sermon. Um, and you're like, great, I guess I need to turn off the stove at home or something like that. Um, we're going to do what I like to call a 30,000 feet uh, view of Ruth. We're not going to be able to get into uh, the really, really uh, intricate details of this book. But what I want us to do, and this is helpful, I think, at times, is to step back and see what we truly learn from the book of Ruth. And really what we see is a story of a restored soul. We see the story of a restored soul. Now, Isaiah calls us in Isaiah 61, as we've been looking at the difficulties and trials of life that can cause us to face depression and despair and, and can become an all-encompassing aspect of our lives, Isaiah gives us hope in Isaiah 61. And of course, this hope is settled as he, as he prophesies of the coming of the Christ. The Christ is the one who has the Spirit of the Lord God upon him. The one who the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed to bring good news to the poor. He sent the Lord to bind up who? The brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to them who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of what? Ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may 
be glorified. The book of Ruth is a story of how God makes beauty from ashes. How He takes the ashes of a life that in many regards from an external standpoint is completely devastated by circumstances and provides for it true hope and change. We see this in the story of Ruth. Now it's interesting The book of Ruth is titled, obviously, the book of Ruth. But the story begins and ends not really with a focus on Ruth, but rather with a focus on her mother-in-law, on Naomi. Look with me in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read the first chapter, and then I'm going to come back and make a few observations. And that's where we're going to be going. We have nine observations from this entire story that I want us to make that can be helpful for us as we walk through times of difficulty and darkness, times of depression, despondency, and despair. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathah, yeah, they were them. I can't get that one out. From Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And that is not Oprah. As I was reading this all throughout, I kept seeing Oprah, Oprah everywhere. It's Orpah, not Oprah. All right. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want us to see very quickly here in chapter 1 three observations about depression and how it can oftentimes intrude upon our lives. And the first thing that I note about the suffering that we see, particularly as Naomi is in view here, is that our souls can become and oftentimes are vexed by compounded suffering. That many times what we find when we find ourselves in darkness and despair is it can be that All of life seems against us. That one thing after another thing after another thing seems to come and there is a cascade of difficulty that causes us to sink into sadness and depression. Now look at this story. There's uh, several things to note about what Naomi is facing. First of all, there's famine in the land of Israel. Now we read that. And we're sort of like, okay, there's a famine in the land. We see that throughout the Scriptures. Oftentimes there are famines that come in. But we have really no idea what a famine is like in our day and age. You know, I, what, what did we worry about during COVID? We couldn't find toilet paper. Remember that? But I dare say the Lord cared for and protected us. There was food in the grocery stores. There was food that was provided for us. When we hear famine, when we read that in Scripture, this is a dire circumstance. There's not enough food to feed people. And people are literally starving to death. That is the circumstance that's going on. So I just want you to think, we all know the the pressure that COVID brought into our lives, right? We know what that was like. This is that times 10 times, times 100 times. The circumstances of society were such that they were very distressing. And so there's a famine in the land. And so as a result, Elimelech and his family chooses to take his family and to leave behind everything that they've ever known. He uproots their family and goes to Moab. Now, I think it's also important to note here that this was likely a foolish choice, a sinful choice. The law forbid any kind of interactions between the Jews and the Moabites. They were hated enemies of each other. 
And so, again, the, the, the narrative here doesn't discuss with us whether or not there was some discussion between Elimelech and Naomi, whether or not they thought this was the best thing to do. But it may have been that Naomi was just following her husband's lead and her husband was making foolish choices, damaging choices. Which I think is important for us to realize and note that suffering is not always a result of our own choices. Other people's foolish choices can cause us to suffer. They go to this strange land, uprooted from everything that they've ever known. They get there, and as the narrative points us to, what happens, it seems like almost immediately, Naomi's husband, what? Dies. Her husband dies. Now, you can imagine the disorientation that this would cause for her. Here she is in a strange land, here she is with now surrounded by people she's not familiar with. She has sons with her. They certainly were a comfort and a help to her, but the reality is her husband died. As they spend time there, they, her sons take Moabite wives, and, and there perhaps is some joy in that for her. She, she looks to, to the continued propagation of her family. But it's interesting, and it's not noted in the, um, the narrative explicitly, but the fact that it's mentioned that they didn't have any sons is likely an indication that these women that her sons had taken, they were barren. And so she had looked forward to the joy of raising and helping and, and loving grandchildren, and the Lord didn't provide that. Ten years go on, and what happens to her sons? They die. And there is a, a very deep-seated understanding within our, within our lives that we think that, that children should, or that parents should not bury their children. It should be the other way around, right? And there's a great grief that comes when children die. This was both of her sons. So you can imagine the disorientation that she's facing now. Not only has her husband gone, but now her two sons, which would be there to provide for her and care for her, they're gone. And so you have an Israelite woman all alone in the land of Moab who just now has two daughters-in-law that are Moabites themselves. And so you have all sorts of compounding issues coming that when you read what Naomi says, and I think sometimes in our reading of these discussions and thinking about them, we can look at this and be like, well, of, yeah, I know things are bad, Naomi, but we know how the story ends, right? And so we look back and we think, oh, this was foolish of her. Oh, she's re overreacting. No. If you face those same type of difficulties in your life, you would be reacting like Naomi would be. And so it's very clear here to see that suffering, compounded suffering, vexes our souls and can bring us to a deep depression in our lives. Depression can be caused by seasons of what seems like unrelenting difficulty. 
where it seems like nothing goes right for us. Everything seems to go wrong. And as the days, weeks, months, and even years go on, it appears that things aren't getting better. They only appear to get worse. So how do we react when those type of things happen? Well, unfortunately, many times this suffering can secondly cause us to withdraw from others to pull back into ourselves and to revert into ourselves, to become, to some degree, hermits. We see this with Naomi. She has two loving daughter-in-laws, Moabite women, who want to be with her. And what does she say to them? Go away. Go back to your mother's house. Go there where you can remarry and, and at least the difficulty, at least the stigma of my life wouldn't be placed upon you. Be free of the suffering that I bring. She pushes them away. Very much like we looked at last week with the woman at the well because of her circumstances, she just determined to be away from other people. Naomi's doing the same thing. We know that Orpah, with tears in her eyes, and let's not make Orpah the villain here. She desired to be with Naomi, but she also listened to her and she went her way. And so Naomi is, is thinking she's not going to be a burden to them. She's going to be alone with her pain and she's going to push these other people away, even those who are closest to her. And this is what depression can do in our lives. We can make, and this is a mistake, and I'm going to explain why this is a mistake, but we can make this mistake to say, I don't want help. I don't need anyone to step in. I want to be alone. And that is the most dangerous thing you can do in depression. And as this Suffering has vexed them by compounded suffering as it's caused Naomi to withdraw from others. The third thing that we see here that I think is important for us to work through is that our suffering can distort reality. There are lots of things that Naomi points to here um, that are not correctly perceived because of the circumstances that she's facing. Now, I'm not necessarily faulting Naomi for this, but I'm pointing it out as a reality that happens when we face depression. Suffering can distort our reality. The first thing that I think we see here is that when in despair, all we seem to see is more despair. That's what Naomi points to here. She turned to her daughters-in-law away because she felt the situation was hopeless, that nothing good can come from what she's facing. She could not bear them sons to wed. She had no husband. Even if she did get a husband, would they wait until they, they, these sons were grown and be willing to wed them? No. She looked at her circumstance, which was terrible, and she determined nothing good can come from this. There's nothing good that can come out of this. And so it distorted her reality of what was happening. Everything's bad. Secondly, our view of God 
can become distorted. In several places in this narrative, Naomi points to the fact and expresses at best a perplexion and at worst, I think, an anger toward God laying the fault for her circumstances directly at his feet. She speaks about how the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. She views her circumstances as a testimony that God is not for her, but against her. Now, we have to recognize and not become open theists here as though these circumstances are happening outside the purview of God's control. Is God in control even in this circumstance? Yes. And in fact, as we look back and seek to correct these distortions, we'll see God's providence clearly laid out in this passage. But nonetheless, we can take that and unjustly blame God and and put upon God that which He's using not to be punitive, but He's just using for His good purposes. In fact, this book is an entire testament to the fact that Yahweh is not against Naomi. He's for her. And that he chooses to use difficulties as a way to bring about that which is best, not just for her, but as we back up in this story, for all humanity. God uses Naomi's sufferings. But yet, in the midst of that, suffering, she lays the blame at God's feet. Maybe this is because she feels guilty for what Elimelech and her did in leaving Israel and going to the Moabites. Maybe it's due to making the mistake that Job's friends made about him. Remember, Job faced immense suffering. Was that, that suffering was clearly ordained by the sovereign hand of God. But Job's friends came to him and said, this is happening because you're what? A sinner. And we know that in the book later on, we find it's, it wasn't because Job had done some terrible sin that these things happened. God had greater purposes. In many ways, her view of her circumstance is that her circumstance is unredeemable, that she can't be saved from this. And so her view of God is distorted. God is only against me. God is only going to deal me with bitterness. God sent me away full, but I've come back empty. That's how the Almighty has dealt with me. I think that Naomi clearly at the end of chapter one has come to a place of hopelessness. I think it would be right for us to say she is depressed. So her view of God becomes distorted by her suffering. Thirdly, her view of her circumstances become distorted. The commentary in verse 18 is very interesting. It's very telling. Here is the one good thing that's happening in this, in this terrible circumstance. She sends Orpah away, but who clings to her? Ruth. And just a a quick note, as we seek to encourage and help other people who are walking through darkness, they will push us away. Sometimes we need to cling to them, even though they push us away. We need to be willing to 
hold on to them for the sake of their good as we encourage others in these times of darkness. But this is a good thing. Naomi is not left alone. Ruth is staying with her, but yet when she sees that she's determined to go with her, the response is she's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to argue with you anymore. She doesn't view it as a blessing. She doesn't view it as a good thing. Her circumstance is so distorted by her suffering that she sees nothing but good. She doesn't view Ruth as a blessing. And the irony here is that this story is all about how Ruth becomes the greatest blessing to Naomi through this. There are other providential blessings of God throughout this passage that Naomi is not seeing. She overlooks both the love of Ruth and Orpah fervently. They're weeping when she's leaving. She has people that care deeply for her. You also recognize that she was in Moab. The famine was likely not just simply centered on Israel, but it affected all the region. And what does she hear about Israel? The famine's what? Gone. God has taken that terrible societal circumstance and removed it from her. And further, there's sort of a, um, a phrase that we sort of skip over, but we have to recognize how important it is to the entire story. At the end of verse 22, it says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of what? Harvest, the barley harvest, which is going to play a key role in the rest of the story. The fact that it is the harvest. Do you think it was by chance that they happened to end up back at Israel at the time of the harvest? No. God's working and providing goodness through this. And so our suffering can distort the reality and bring it to the point that we think everything is bad. But when we understand, as this book calls us to do, to to look to and find the hope that God is working in all these things, we can actually look to the suffering itself and view it as a blessing. You say, really? Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. As he has this thorn in the flesh, he looks and sees that God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. So what does Paul say? I'm going to boast of my what? Weaknesses. Because he sees the weakness now as a way that the power of Christ can rest upon him. He's able to know the power of God and the goodness of God through the suffering in a way that he would not be able to understand otherwise. So our view of our circumstances can become distorted. Our view of God can become distorted. When in despair, we always see only more despair. But the final thing and the thing that is so sad in this story is that Naomi's view of herself becomes distorted. Her desperate and painful circumstances have brought her to view not just her situation as bitter, but herself as bitter. Notice what she says to the women of the town. She's come back, and, and there's, there's buzz in the town. Naomi has returned. And she's also returned with a Moabite. So there was probably a lot of, a lot of whispering and gossip going on. And so the women come to her, and they say, Is this Naomi? Now, the name Naomi means beautiful or blessed or abundant. And Naomi comes to them and she says, do not 
call me what? Naomi. I'm not beautiful anymore. I'm not precious. I'm not abundance. Rather, call me Mara, which means bitter. She's transferred the bitterness of her circumstances to herself completely so that now not only are her circumstances distorted, not only is God distorted, but she herself is distorted. Her view of herself is distorted. In her mind, this is all she is. She doesn't want to be viewed with sweetness, but bitterness. I mean, this also contributes to more of her withdrawing from other people. I don't want, I don't want my problems to get on them. I don't want to bring people down. Have you ever said those things when you're in the midst of difficulty? It's because you're taking and distorting the reality of what's actually happening. And what is amazing about this book is that it is a demonstration that Naomi is, in God's eyes, anything but bitter. He views her as that which is worthy of his redemption. But yet in the midst of the difficulty, her view of so many things is distorted. Then we come to chapter 2 and chapter 3. Look with me. I'll read. I'm going to read very quickly here, okay? So, because we, we, we've, it's already 1052, and I'm like, wow, we got a lot to go here. So, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to move fast, all right? So, imagine you're like listening to a podcast on two times speed, all right? That's sort of what's going to happen here. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let her glean, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she was continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
And also pull out some of, from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then there she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. See, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked with, and said, The, the name, man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with the, the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. We're going to go on to chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose um, young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the flesh threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then he told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right, that was a lot. I know it's unusual to read that much scripture in a service, but let me tell you, this is the living, active word of God. And it is good that we read it. What do we observe from these chapters, chapters 2 and 3? Well, third or fourthly, I think we recognize God is always working for good. God is always providentially working for our good. The providence of God is all over these two chapters. 
again, it's important to note, did they just by chance arrive at the time of harvest? No. God providentially worked that. Did, would it just happen to be that Naomi's relative was Boaz, that there just happened to be this upstanding man of Bethlehem that was there? Was that, was that just by chance? No. In fact, we can even look back further and see that when God gave the law to Moses, God was being good to Naomi and Ruth. This entire thing where she goes into the field and she's able to reap from what's left over. Why was she able to do that? I mean, you know, those of you who have gardens today, how would you feel about somebody walking through your garden and picking your tomatoes, right? You wouldn't be too happy about it. But yet God in Deuteronomy 24 spoke particularly of how there was to be a, a way in which that those who, during the time of harvest would leave something back for those who didn't have something. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back to get it. Leave it. For the sojourn, the followers, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. What's interesting to note is the people that God specifically points this law to benefit. Those who are suffering. Widows. Orphans. Those who are without a home. And so we see the abundant providential grace of God and goodness towards those who are suffering here. And then it's, it's even amazing to see how God's providence is seen in the field she chooses to glean in. The biblical narrative in, um, chapter, in verse 3, notice what it says, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and it says, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Was that by chance? It just happened to go to this field? No. In fact, I was reading a, um, a, a translation of the Old Testament written by an unbelieving man, and he even pointed out the irony here of this. She didn't just happen to show up there. God was working in that circumstance. Again, it's dripping with irony in that verse. God is always, always working for good. And of course, this verse gets over-quoted when we're facing suffering, but it still is nonetheless true. We know that for those who love God, how many things work together for good? All things. For those who are called according to His purpose. The second thing we notice in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that God uses people as the instrument of His good. While God is providentially working through this circumstance, God also places individuals into the lives of His suffering people so that they could find relief. We see this with Boaz, first of all. Boaz provides goodness. Again, the law just said that anything that they didn't get when they harvested, they were supposed to leave it back. Is, that, is, is Boaz happy with that? Is that enough for Ruth in Boaz's eyes? No! He goes far beyond. He's like, listen, you stay with my men. My men won't touch you. There was a real danger for a young woman, particularly likely an attractive woman, to go into the fields with the harvesters, the blue-collar workers in those days, that they would be assaulted. 
She was putting herself in a dangerous position by doing that. Boaz says, I've told my young men they are not to touch you. And so she finds safety in Boaz's provision there. He provides more for her. He actually tells them, take some of the bundles that you put together and leave them. Don't take them to where they need to be threshed out. Leave them for her. He provides food and sustenance to Ruth, so much so that there's an abundance that she can bring the leftovers home to Naomi. He provides this protection and he provides great comfort to Ruth. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let me just challenge you as someone who has the opportunity to encourage people who are in darkness. Be this type of person when you talk to people. Be the type of person who seeks to comfort and to speak kindly to them in the midst of their suffering. Don't withdraw, engage. Seek to help them. Not only does Boaz provide goodness, but particularly for Naomi, Ruth provides goodness. There's goodness that is recognized by Boaz. Boaz sees Ruth and is like, I know that you're an honorable woman because I've heard how you left everything to stay with your mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth provides goodness to Naomi by going out into the fields and working them to help her. She's putting herself into a dangerous circumstance. She brings food to her. And she is someone who... Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. She kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the, bar, uh, of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Boaz is actually going to note later on, you could have married a younger man. And, you know, frankly, it, you maybe weren't concerned with how much money they had. You just wanted a younger man, whether they got richer or, or poor, but you've kept close to Naomi. Again, the darkness and the depression that Naomi is facing is distorted. Her view of her circumstances is distorted by what she's facing, but yet there is such goodness in people in her lives. God uses people as instruments for good. And thirdly, the third observation on chapters 2 and 3 I'd like to point out is God accomplishes His plan despite resistance. I'm a big fan of Star Trek, all right? And I loved the, the, the episodes where you dealt with the Borg, all right? And what was the big tagline from the Borg? Resistance is what? Futile. Or if you're Picard, if you're Picard when he was Borg, futile in that British accent that he gave. Sorry, I'm... I'm nerding out here, so. There's no, when God resists something, it is never futile. No matter how much our circumstances, no matter how much the enemy may fight against God's plans, nothing can thwart what God has determined to do. Nothing. We really can go back to chapter 1 to see this. We see this in the sinful choices likely of Elimelech and Naomi to go to Moab 
Does that thwart God's plan to, to work good out of this? No. I think sometimes we think that though we have made mistakes in the past, that that somehow has ruined what God is going to do for us. In fact, God is so abundantly powerful that he's able to turn around our evil for good. What does Joseph say to his brothers who sold him into slavery? You meant it for what? Evil. God meant it for what? Good. And so there's great hope in that. God works despite the resistance of prejudice. Listen, when this Moabite woman came in with Naomi to Bethlehem, I'm sure there was a lot of opposition. There's a reason why it caused a stir in the town. What is he doing with this Moabite? In fact, doesn't the law say we're not supposed to have anything to do with the Moabites? And yet, God is working through and actually will produce something amazing in this story through a Moabite woman. Listen, we have to tear down the walls we have built of racial and social prejudice. Tear them down. God doesn't see them. God works despite the resistance of temptation. Ruth had other men, obviously Boaz points that there were other men that, he, that she could go to, other men that would fulfill that need for her. And then as we come to the end of chapter 3, there's a possible difficulty on the horizon because here's Boaz who has been so gracious and loving and caring for Ruth and Naomi. Right? He's, he's been everything they've been wanting, Right? And so they stand on the cusp and, and Ruth goes in and she's like, I want you to redeem me. And it's like, this is going to be great and everything's going to be better. And then what does Boaz say? There's somebody else who is a nearer redeemer than I. There's the possibility that everything they've been looking to may not come to fruition. And so oftentimes our lives are filled with resistance, particularly when we're facing darkness and depression, that resistance can be very, very much at the forefront of our minds and can seem overwhelming. And it can seem like just when we're getting over the edge, something else comes up to block our way. But remember, can anything thwart God's good purposes? No. Which brings us to chapter 4. So now we're set with the scene. Boaz needs to go talk to this nearer redeemer. What's going to happen? Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn us aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day, uh, if, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Uh-oh. Boaz has just been shown the door, right? Keep reading. 
Then Boaz said, well, it's something else to keep in mind. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So there was a law that when someone died childless, that there was a responsibility for the kinsman redeemer to come and to perpetuate the, the line of that person by, by taking that woman as his wife. And so what Boaz is saying is, if you want the land, Ruth comes with it as well. You can't redeem, redeem part of it. You have the whole thing. And so how does this nearer redeemer respond? The nearer redeemer says... I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. He's considering his own children. He's like, I don't want to dilute what they're going to get. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Moaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. I, I want you to just note here the significance of the elders of Bethlehem saying this to a Moabite woman. The grace of God is amazing. He's saying, I, I want her to be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, and Tamar's story is a sad one, bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord blessed her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of who? David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David.
What a beautiful end to what begins as a tragic story. Just three final things to note in chapter 4. God accomplishes His purposes through adversity. Again, this blessing given by the elders in verse 11 and 12 of this passage is surprising. The blessings of Rachel and Leah are on a Moabite woman. Throughout this entire narrative, there is a building anticipation of something better for Naomi. Now, has Naomi passed through adversity? Yes. Deep, dark adversity. But rather, those adversities, than, rather than being a hindrance to her blessing, are actually the very thing God uses to bless her. I mean, think about if they had never gone to Moab. She would have never met Ruth. Th think about if, if throughout this, if things had not happened the way that they had happened, God's plan would have not have worked out this way, and Naomi may have missed the blessing. But it's actually through the adversity that God brings about his blessing. I just point this out to say, when you are suffering, what is the first thing you want to happen? Go away. But yet God in his sovereignty can use that suffering to bring about better good for you. We must not miss this. Not one ounce of your suffering is wasted. God has a purpose for it all. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Everything you face will pale in comparison to the goodness God brings from it. Secondly, that means then that God's purposes for suffering are better than not suffering. Just here in this passage, we see that God is able to use this, what he does with Ruth and Naomi to bring about the birth of the most well-known king of Israel, David. A man after God's own heart. I mean, there's a great point here that Naomi becomes the great-great-grandmother to David the king. And what do the women in this village say about her now? The women who were likely snipping and gossiping about, oh, Naomi's back here with this Moabite woman, and, and their prejudice had welled up within them. And now that, that, that hustle and bustle and that disturbing of the town of Bethlehem is now turned back, and, and these women come to Naomi, and they say that, he, that Naomi is better than seven sons. I mean, think about that. This story begins with Naomi losing her two sons. And that grief and darkness was real and intense, but yet through that, God brings about a greater blessing for her. This is the pattern we find in Scripture. Job, after he suffered, what is restored to him? Greater things. But the whole point of this book, 
which we can say, pull so much helpful for, so, much, so many things helpful for us as we walk through darkness and despondency. But the reality of this is that God takes away suffering through his Redeemer. Through all this, we see Boaz as a key player in this entire story. Boaz is the one who gives graciously. He actually owed Naomi and Ruth nothing, right? There was a nearer redeemer. He had no obligation to go through and do these things. And yet, he goes and provides abundant blessing, a future hope for them. Chapter 4, verse 14 is so important. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. The reality for us that are in similar circumstances as Naomi, who face the darkness of depression, is that God has not left you without a Redeemer. That He has provided hope in one who will come and reverse the very cause of your suffering, sin. He will turn back the curse that comes to play. Now, we end here in Ruth just with David, but we have to fill in the rest of the story, don't we? Which takes us to Matthew. Matthew gives us the genealogy, not just of David the king, but of Christ the king. Notice what Matthew says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And I have Tamar marked out there because look up her story. It is a sad, painful story. Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz. Notice, by Rahab. Or I'm, I'm sorry, by Rahab. Rahab, in the Old Testament, she's always referred to as Rahab the harlot. She's a prostitute. And yet here she is in the line of Jesus. You want to talk about a God who brings beauty from ashes. We see it there. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. We have a Moabite woman. Rahab is a Canaanite woman in the lineage of Christ the King. Jesse, the father of David the King. And David was the father of Solomon. And here we have another tragic circumstance by the wife of Uriah. What is amazing to see in the genealogy, and I know we, don't, we all don't like genealogies, but there's so much hope in here that God can turn back whatever suffering, whatever past you have, whatever difficulty you've gone through, you have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. So what can we draw to a conclusion from this? How can, how can Ruth's story, or really Naomi's story, and, and really as I look at this book, while it is titled Ruth, it really is the story of Naomi. 
What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, as we face deep and, deep and darkening circumstances, we need to recognize that our perception is often distorted by our suffering. When you're facing depression, when you're facing darkness, realize that you likely are not seeing things correctly. Secondly, there's going to be that temptation to pull away from others, engage with others rather than withdrawing from them. God has created you to need the support of other people in the body of Christ. And that includes both those who are facing depression where you're going to have that temptation to pull away from people. It also includes those of us who are seeking to help others. Don't, don't be like Ruth and cling to those who are suffering. Don't withdraw from them. We, we have a society where we just sort of want to go about our lives without having to deal with difficulties. God has not called you to stay aloof from people's suffering. He's called you to follow Christ who enters into our suffering. So we must enter into the sufferings of others to help them. Bible Baptist Church needs to be a place where we are willing to reach out to those who are suffering and comfort them and speak kindly to them. Thirdly, look for God's goodness rather than focusing on the pain. No matter what is going on in your life, God is doing good things. It may be hard to see, but they're there. And look for them, and they become an indication of God's goodness and hope for you. Fourthly, trust in God's purpose for your pain. I'm not saying here that this needs to be like, oh, yay, I get, to, I get to suffer. But realize that God's suffering, God bringing suffering into your life produces good things. And that on the end, and even if the end doesn't happen until you are in eternity with Christ, God is working good. Do you think Job knew that God was doing good things in the midst of his circumstance? We didn't, Job wasn't privy to that courtroom scene in heaven. And so God may be even be working things that you aren't even aware of. Praise God that he worked in Ruth and Naomi's life so that Christ came. Would that we would be used by God in such a way to accomplish his purposes. And then finally, look to Christ who redeems you from your pain. He is the only hope. He is the only hope. But He is full hope. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So Ruth, the story of a restored soul. And God is working those same things in your darkness. Look to him. Find hope in him. We have such a great redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how we have these records of how you sovereignly worked to bring about relief to those who are suffering. Lord, may we cling to these truths today. May we come back to this story. May we come back to what we've learned the last several weeks. Father, we suffer in this world. That suffering is given to cause us to run to you. Thank you that you are a God who is full of compassion and love. Take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives.